I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And the study sheet in your bulletin will be essential today. I think very helpful in knowing how we're going to, to move along here. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we are taking larger sections that enable us to move through the book in a one ministry year. So indeed, we'll conclude at the end of June. But that means that today we step into what is often called the Olivet Discourse, which is two chapters long. It's located toward the end of the life of Jesus. Of course, we know that from Palm Sunday on, he's in that last week of his earthly life. And the days are clicking off here until he, in Matthew's gospel, heads to the cross, there to die for our sin. And along the way, you have this lengthy conversation, sermon, Matthew 24 and 25. Today, we will take a look at the first half of that, chapter 24, next Sunday, uh, chapter 25, in its entirety as well. Of course, in taking that big of a bite, you know that we will not necessarily be going line by line. But as I think you'll hear from what I have to say, I think that that's a good thing, really. Um, If you look with me at your study notes, you certainly see the review element there. And then the section called today's text, where I note that this, this... section, these two chapters, are much debated. I know that that's a surprise, okay, it's not a surprise to you at all. Um, Much debated texts by all those who take a look at the end of the world and future things and wonder, what is this part about? What's that part about? Is this saying what I think it it says? And I give you a couple of quotes there from others who say, man, this 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 is pretty rough. But I want to just give you this, and then we're going to pray together and jump on it. But uh, I, I don't want you to be intimidated by or discouraged by the, the wealth of detail and the ambiguity. I don't want you to get lost in schemes or frameworks or this writer opinions, uh, writer's opinion or another. I don't want you to get lost in that because these chapters are decidedly pointed at some things that are important to wrap your brain around. We're going to see that uh, after all the detail. There's a couple things Jesus says that for sure, every one of us can say, okay, I'm not sure about all the rest of this or this or this, but that I'm sure about. So don't be be too scared. It's going to turn out okay. And I want to pray for us. And I'm excited about this. It's a wonderful text. All of it points us to Christ. But pray with me here, please, if you would. Our Father, it is with great delight that we come to the Word of God. Uh, sometimes in come to sections that, because there's so much conversation about them or puzzling about them, that it can be intimidating. And you, you never intended that, that we would be intimidated. We, you intended that we would come to the Word of God and have our, uh, our hearts filled with joy. But because we see that you, as God and King, you sit on the throne of the universe and, and you know what you're doing. And you have these things well in hand. And so thankful that for all the things we don't understand, that you understand them all, human history, and you are leading human history to a place that you intend to take us. And we're so thankful for that confidence. So help us now as we open the scripture together. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Matthew 24, if you glance at your study sheet with me once more, I want you to kind of see how I want to set this up. A little different than what I often do. I'm going to read the first three verses in a minute and set the the, the scene for us. Then I want to talk about 
prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature and how we read what's in front of us. That's going to take a few minutes before we read the whole rest of the text. So if you think, man, he's talking a long time without reading the whole part. I know, I know we're going to get there. All right. And then, and then I'll, I'll deal with this whole chapter is in a way that I think is appropriate for that time. But, but no worries. We're going to come along. I want to read the first three verses then. And here set the stage for all that is to follow. So we're partway through that last week of Jesus' earthly life. Palm Sunday, of course, began that, that clock. Um, and that was several uh, chapters ago. But chapter 24 then begins like this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. That would mean apart from a big crowd. Saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And I'll stop there for just a moment or two. So between verses 1 and 2 and then verse 3, there is a little bit of a shift geographically. Verses 1 and 2, as Jesus is leaving the temple, they, they have this intriguing uh, teaser of a conversation. And then verse 3 picks up uh, after they've walked across the Kidron Valley, down the other side uh, to the Mount of Olives. A w- similar walk to what Jesus will do just a few days hence when he uh, finishes Passover and heads across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives where he'll be betrayed. So it's a similar walk, but there's a little space between verses 2 and 3. So they leave the temple, Herod's temple. There's a few notes of this on your, your study sheet there. Herod's temple, it's being built. It's under construction. started in about 20 BC, and like most massive building projects in antiquity, it's going to take decades You know, sometimes we get a little frustrated. We say, man, how long are they going to be building town center? It's been X number of years. Well, relax. Uh, If it was Herod's temple, it's been 50 years in construction by about the time Jesus is talking. And they're not even done yet. And in fact, when the Romans take the place down in 70 uh, AD, they're not done building it. Well, they undo what's been 70 years in the making. Now, some of these stones, history will tell us, were really, really big, like the size of a bus. Uh, most school buses these days are about 35 feet. So the snub-nosed ones are uh, transits are about 40. Some of these stones were like 40 feet long and 12 by 12. Can you imagine that? Very large. So when they're leaving the temple that's being built and the disciples are saying, boy, Jesus, look at that place. They're making what is very common conversation. People were walking around doing the same thing. Whoa, look at that. It was, a, it was a sight to behold. Some of those stones covered with gold that the Romans would later melt down and pick out of all the little cracks where the gold ran, getting ahead of ourselves. But they're amazed as they look at this place. Jesus, isn't that, isn't that cool? And Jesus then says that amazing statement, verse 2. Yep, pretty amazing. It's all coming down. Can you imagine? What do you mean it's all coming down? That's a big rock. Uh, they're thinking, built for the ages. Jesus says, yeah, in about 30 years. Huh. So it's no wonder in verse 3 that seated there with Jesus in private audience, they say, what are you talking about? When, now, they ask these two questions. When will this happen? And what will be the sign? 
And by the way, may I say, those two questions have not changed in 2,000 years. The same two things that most of us who ever talk about the end of the world in prophecy want to know. When and how will we know when it's about here? There's a lot of earthquakes. Uh, what's going on in Israel? What's going on at the Dome of the Rock? Uh, who's getting ready to fight against whom? What about the book of Ezekiel? What about Daniel 9? When? When's it going to be? I have good news for you. I'm not going to tell you today. Because uh, I don't know either. And the minute I propose a date, you should immediately take me out and do something else with me. Put me out to pasture. No, I don't know either. So the same questions the disciples are asking are, are ours. When is this going to be? Uh, Jesus could just give a you know, couple sentences and say, oh, actually in about, you know, 2,050 years. He could have said something like that, and he doesn't. He takes two chapters, and he talks about signs, but in a very enigmatic way. When, what, it's what we want to know. Now, uh, as you look at that first little paragraph, not only the construction is going to take place for decades, but I want us to see the, 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 the mindset of the disciples. This is really important because it tells you how they're going to hear what Jesus says. How are they going to hear it? Okay? Your, your worldview, your expectation. This is what Jesus was addressing. So I'm giving you two texts here. The first is a typo on my part. I put Luke 19.14. It's actually Luke 19.11. But I, I just want to read these two to, because it gives you insight into what Jesus' disciples are hearing, what they're expecting. In Luke 19.11, this is uh, an account from just a few days before in, in Luke's gospel. It's the day of um, Jesus coming into Jerusalem triumphal entry. And in Luke 19.11, Jesus is doing some teaching, and Luke makes this comment. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, the disciples, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's what they were expecting. Jesus is Messiah. Um, here he is. He's doing cool things. He's fulfilling scripture, Old Testament prophecy. We've got the Messiah here. And there's a kingdom sure to follow, and we're with him. So they're expecting good things to come very, very quickly. Now, at this moment, Luke 19, Jesus, of course, has not died on the cross, risen from the dead yet. So they have not had that big disappointment. Now, when you come to Acts 1, you find out that even after Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, their expectation is still the same. They're still thinking, okay, man, we got that over with. This terrible moment when our Messiah died, but now he's, he's, here he is. And they're thinking still kingdom now. That's in their mind. They don't understand kingdom later like you understand it. Now, 2,000 years later, they're thinking kingdom now as evidenced by Acts chapter 1. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. This is the place from which Jesus will ascend to heaven. And they say in chapter 1 verse 6, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they keep saying, is it now? Is it now? Um, and that's the way their minds are working when they hear what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Okay? That's important. They're not thinking Hal Lindsey. They're not thinking all the other prophetic writers that you've read. They're thinking kingdom now. All right. Now, um, if you look with me at your study sheet, I want to give you a couple of things before I read the whole rest of the chapter, which I will do. When we think about what's going on in chapter 24, I want, to til I want to tip my hand. I want to tell you how I understand this chapter, okay? 
Uh, I understand this chapter to be Jesus weaving together two seasons of judgment that are coming. One close to that time, another still future. I see this chapter as Jesus weaving them together. We would like him not to do that. We would like to have him just kind of speak to us like we're used to be, uh, being spoken to. Just tell us this part and then this. I think he's weaving together these two. The coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think some of the details are specific to that. And I think some of those details given in this chapter are yet future to our day. And Jesus doesn't differentiate them. Now, um, I give you one text and then I'm going to step to a couple of books to give you just a little bit of perspective on some of these things. This, this weaving together of two seasons of judgment or two future statements is called pr- prophetic foreshortening. If you would like the, the term that you're going to Google later or not, uh, there it is. Uh, you can look it up. Prophetic foreshortening. And it's, it's, it's used in the Bible a lot in prophetic literature where two distinct events are woven together. One example I give you here, one's enough to prove my point. Luke 4, verses 16 to 21 and Isaiah 61. It's a story that you'll recognize as I describe it. Uh, Luke, uh, Luke tells the story of Jesus in a, in a synagogue setting being handed the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to chapter 61 on the scroll and he reads a section about himself. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me, and it gives a whole description. And here's the thing. In Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is reading away in Isaiah 61, and he stops. He stops in what looks to us like mid, mid-sentence. Because the next line is, and the day of judgment of our God. He stops there. If you read Isaiah 61, you wouldn't see it. It looks like you're just reading a section on Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news and let the captives free and et cetera, et cetera, and the, and the day of judgment. And he stops. Why? Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows there's two comings of Messiah, and they're woven together in the same text. And you don't see it until the first coming happens. And for Jesus, it was a coming for redemption. Second coming, the day of judgment of our God. So he reads the first part. Then Luke's gospel tells us he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, sits down and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Not the next part, that part. So prophetic foreshortening then takes the same paragraph, Isaiah 61, talks about two different events, crunches them together, and at the moment you'd read it, you wouldn't see the difference. That's what I'm saying. I believe Matthew 24 is like that as well. Jesus speaking about two different seasons of judgment uh, some people use mountain peaks as an example of this. If you stand on top of a mountain, you, you boy, I've been on top of Mount St. Helens. It sure looks like Mount Rainier and Mount Hood are just right there. But they're not. A little geography in between. Prophetic foreshortening. Now, I'm going to move on in just a second here, but I want to step to this table. As you, as you read prophetic literature, uh, as you know, if you've been around uh, the academy for a while, you know that, that a lot of people have written or have done prophecy conferences down through the years. You've been to, some of you have been to those. The 60s, of course, 70s, just hotbeds of prophecy conferences and so on. Good, I'm sure. Uh, a couple books that I just brought from my library, in part because I want you to know they exist, and, 
and some of them I have read, not read all of them. John MacArthur will tell you about the book of Revelation. It's called Because the Time is Near. John MacArthur explains the book of Revelation. Well, there you go. Makes some references to Matthew's gospel. Tim LaHaye will also take a crack at it in an older book. Um, Revelation illustrated and made plain. I know, you're going to make a run on these books as soon as we leave here. It's made plain, it's explained. What more do you want? Well, uh, prior to those, this is an older book that I admit to rescuing from the Sunset Bible Church Library before it went to other places. But uh, back from the old building, J. Dwight Pentecost. This is a classic uh, dispensational viewpoint. I'm a dispensationalist. I just happen to be a smiling and happy one compared to some others. But this is a classic old school way of looking at Matthew 24 and 25. It's called Things to Come. Covers it all. Nation of Israel. Oh, my goodness sakes. He's pretty clear on the way it is. So J. Dwight Pentecost is one reading of that. Now, in, in, another, in another world of theology, R.C. Sproul. Now, now watch this carefully. Pentecost, this guy, J. Dwight Pentecost, would suggest that most of Matthew 24 is all about the future. He wouldn't agree with what I just said about the weaving together of two events. He would say, no, no, it's all future. Along comes R.C. Sproul and says, no, Jay, you're wrong too. It's all past. See, R.C. would look at, the, it's called a preterist viewpoint. Uh, that's the technical term for it. He would say Matthew 24 was all fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem. I'm summarizing a whole book. But he would say, no, past. He would say, all future. I'm saying, uh, no, it's a weaving together of two. So you understand, before you um, take it up with me in the parking lot, you know, you got some other guys you get to wrestle with as well. I'll explain my viewpoint. Now, Along, uh, added to the discussion in 1990, uh, Marv Rosenthal uh, wrote Pre-Wrath Rapture, where he moves away from what his prior position was, which was a pre-trib rapture. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm so sorry. We'll get back to plain English in a few minutes. But if you know what I'm talking about, he moved away from his prior position of pre-trib rapture to a new position that he espouses in this book, his seminal explanation of this, pre-wrath rapture, came out in 1990. Um, very interesting. Um, but, and I won't try to explain it to you because he took a whole book. Some of these views end up being dated. Uh, this is an example of that. John Walvoord, uh, now with the Lord and the past president of Dallas Seminary, uh, he wrote this cool little book called Armageddon Oil in the Middle East. He's looking at what's going on in Israel and all these things from back in, I want to say, oh my goodness sakes, I don't know when this was written, 70s or someplace like that. Yeah, 70, 74, 76, updated in 1990. Um, but about things being dated, some of these views, I just want to read you one little paragraph that made me smile, and you'll know why. He's talking about the world being set up for a coming dictator and the end of everything, and he says this, new computer technology has already been developed. Right away you're going, oh, you're kidding Say it's not so. Okay, new computer technology has already been developed for what is called the electronic transfer of funds. <laughs> this cutting-edge stuff, man, back in the 70s. Wow. This allows, he's got to explain it because nobody knows what he's talking about at the time. This allows a person to buy and sell without using credit cards, checks, or money in a form of currency. Government-controlled economy, this would allow complete and total control of all transactions. He does have a point. But it was pretty new stuff in the day. Okay, well, people write and come up with views. 
And with my respect to Pentecost and Sproul on the two ends of this, I believe that this text is a weaving together of both. Now, one more element about prophecy, then I promise we'll read the whole chapter and make some comments there, okay? I mentioned some things here. This is a repetition of something I covered in the earlier sermons on Matthew. It shows up in, in chapter 24 and 25. So I bring it to your attention again. When we talk about types of prophecy, there are a couple that you should be aware of, and these are just normal usage terms, exact prophecy and similar. And I, I, they're called other things in theological circles, but those are helpful ways of thinking about it. Exact prophecy, this is that. And I give you an example, Micah 5.2, that is the verse that talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. In other words, this is that. Micah 5.2 is talking about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That's what it's about. Done. Okay. This is that. Now, similar, similar prophecy is a writer finding a similarity without saying it's exactly the same. Case in point, Jeremiah and, of course, early part of Matthew, Jeremiah 31. Um, in Matthew, there's a story about Herod who, was, who, who killed some babies to try to get Jesus killed. Remember this? And it says, a voice was heard in Ramah. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Well, in Jeremiah 31, it wasn't really a prophecy of that event because Ramah was a place that was a jumping off point for Jewish captives being taken away to, to Babylon. So Ramah was a place of, of weeping as families were torn apart and then shipped out never to be seen again. So Rachel, or, or Ramah was this place of, of tears. And so Matthew isn't saying that, that those events were an exact preparation for what happened in with Herod but he was saying you remember that story it's like that again it's like it it's not saying it is that equal it's saying it's like it so I don't know if that helps you to think about prophecy or not but I like to give you some tools right to as you read and understand the Bible yourself now with that in mind I'm going to start reading at verse 4 and I'm going to read the whole chapter and I just want you to, to be ready to think with me about which part is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, 30 years from this time period and what's talking about things that are yet future and what's talking about the whole time period. So here you go. Verse 4, then, Jesus answers their question of when and what will be the sign by saying, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation, so, so when you see, I emphasize, when you see this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, 
let the reader understand, parenthetical, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's picturesque, right? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven, the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servant, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, he continues right into chapter 25. He's not done yet, is he? So we're stopping there for, <laughs> for the sake of getting our arms around some of this. 
Now, as you see on your study sheet, one writer helpfully suggests the following breakdown of this chapter. And he does it in three categories. And I, I say suggests in italics because he does it softly, meaning uh, with a smile, with some gentleness, with some, yeah, it looks like this to me, but, you know, don't, don't, don't get mad at me for this. I'm just trying to help. So you understand. He, he would suggest that the opening part of the chapter, verses 4 to 14, Jesus is talking big picture. That is from the time that he's speaking all the way to the very end. It's going to look like this. Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all kinds of stuff. It's going to look like this. Now, it's not the end. It's, it's birth pains. Okay? So this writer, O'Donnell, who writes for uh, R. Kent Hughes' series, Preaching the Word, uh, he writes the commentary on Matthew, he would suggest that verses 4 to 14 are that big picture from the time of Jesus till the end. These things are true of living in this world. Uh, verse 9 mentions tribulation pointing out that for people who are followers of Jesus, there's never really a safe time. Oh, sure, there are moments, but you, you all understand this, that even now, depending on where you live in the world, it is, it is not safe to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, you, you read the news enough to know this, and of course you, you're aware, because I've said it a number of times, history tells us that more people have lost their life, been killed specifically because they're followers of Jesus in the last 100 years, than in all the years preceding. We often think of martyrs as, you know, um, Roman Colosseum and burned at the stake and so on. But if you count them up by sheer numbers, more people have, have been killed because they're Christians in the last 100 years than in all of human history before. Isn't that interesting? So I, I understand sometimes in prophecy discussions, there are some who point out, thinking they're making a big uh, point by it, well, you guys who believe in a rapture, which I still do, you, you know what? You're, you're making a mistake because the Bible never says God's going to protect you from difficulty. Well, guess what? I never said that he did. Uh, you're not making a point at all. Jesus says here, from the beginning all the way to the end, there's going to be times it's, it's harder to be a Christian. Some of those things are actually taking place in our own country. Not that we're going to die at this moment here, but you already know that being a conservative Christian is not exactly, you know, bumper sticker news. Um, for, for, I mean, a lot of people look at conservative Christians and think, you know what, I'd rather live next to a whole lot of other people than you because you're going to yell at me for stuff. So tribulation is referenced right there. Now, again, O'Donnell would say that verses 4 to 14, 27, 28, 42 to 44, big picture stuff, weaving together. Fulfilled in A.D. 70, Specifically, verses 15 to 26, and he's soft on 26, meaning maybe, maybe a little different. 32 to 35, the fall of Jerusalem that these folks did not see coming. Jesus knows it's coming. You see that in Luke 19, very clearly. You didn't know the time of your visitation. It's coming down, boys. Um, AD 70, uh, you're aware from history, we've talked about it here, that's when the Roman legions under Titus came in and besieged Jerusalem, and it was a pretty awful time. And if you had a chance to run, you should have. History will tell us, uh, secular writers, that, that when they came, it was like, like a blitzkrieg. And if you'd have seen it coming, you should have run while you had the chance. And if you're out there in your field, don't go home and pack a suitcase in your Volvo. No, run now. Because they're going to get you. They're going to get you. So uh, what Jesus is talking about here very, very specifically did take place. 
You're, you're out in the field. You got, you got kids. Good luck, honey. That's part of this. They're going to come for you, and it's going to go very poorly, and it did, 70 A.D. And, of course, then when they finished with Jerusalem, they headed to uh, south, went to Masada. You're familiar with that moment in history, too. Uh, there's some people holed up up there, and we're going to get them, too. And it was a very, very dark day. So O'Donnell would suggest that some of those elements, the abomination of desolation, yes, maybe something future, uh, tribulation, et cetera, et cetera. I get it, I get it. But at this point in particular, oh, many writers would point, this, uh, point out this to be the Roman legions marching right into the temple with all of their pagan symbolism, right in there where God is worshipped and saying, nope, Caesar's taking over. Okay, uh, that could be exactly what Jesus is referring to. O'Donnell would suggest that it is. And then finally, uh, verses 29 to 31 and 36 to 41, uh, O'Donnell would see here uh, things specific to what we would call the second coming, things yet future. Okay, that's one person's attempt to kind of wrestle that through. And I'll let you, maybe using that framework, read it later on and see if you agree. Uh, I still believe, however you go with this verse or that, Jesus is weaving together the immediate, the, the close fulfillment, and future fulfillment in a way that's kind of hard to separate. But he's talking about judgment to come. And I, wa I want you to get a couple of things for sure. Don't get lost in the details. But this is, here's, listen to this. Jesus is very clear about a couple things. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can take this to the bank. Jesus talking about coming judgment. So you can say, well, it hasn't happened yet. Yes, you can be right there in Second Peter 3 with those who say all things continue as they were since the day of creation. No, Jesus says, heaven and earth, can everything you own can pass away. You can pass away. My words will not pass away. Further, Jesus says, as we read it, you saw it, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of, at a time when you don't expect. He's very clear in here, apart from some of the details, how that's going to work, there will be a day. The Son of Man will come at a time when people do not expect him. And then will come a day that you had not expected or else you'd have been ready. So don't miss those details. Now, I want to go to that next section. There's some other details I want to, I want to touch on. Questions about the Olivet Discourse. Things that people often ask as they wrestle with these, with these chapters. Are we in the last days? And again, I use quotes for this because that's how people speak of these things. Are we in the last days or the end times? Biblically, the answer is yes. Not because something specific has happened in Israel or politics. No, in Bible speak, Bible language, any time from the time of Jesus having died on the cross for our sins, risen from the dead, any time from then on is often called the last days or the end times. I've given you two texts where that's the case. There are others, but I just gave you two because you can look them up and go, oh, I see it. Or the Bible uses the term in these last days, Hebrews 1, 1 verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Uh, last days, last days. So that term is used in the Bible for everything from Jesus on. So what you really meant was, are we at the end of the last days? Right? That's really what we want to know. Um, well, uh, we'll leave that for a moment. Verse 14 is a verse that often brings a question uh, because Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom 
will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And so sometimes people look at verse 14 and say, well, clearly Jesus couldn't have come then because the gospel hasn't gone to the whole world. And by doing that, they take away from what uh, we call in eschatology or in, in theology of future things, what we call the doctrine of imminence, that Jesus could come any time. I believe in the doctrine of imminence. I believe Jesus could have come any time after he left and that he could come any time today. Verse 14, I just want to make these two comments. I put on your study sheet, yes and no. I think, well, you're waffling. Uh, no, I don't mean to do that. Um, but I, I do mean to, to pause at this, to say this. If you, when Jesus was talking about the whole world, what did his first hearers hear? Were they thinking Borneo, Peru, uh, South Pacific Islands? Well, no. Uh, to first century people living in Jesus' day, if you said it goes throughout the whole world, they would think the whole of the Roman Empire and its environs, the whole known world. So one argument about what they heard, uh, what Jesus said, was, was man, it's going to go to the whole Roman Empire, which happened very quickly after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Further, if you look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, who all was present on the day of Pentecost, chapter 1 and chapter 2? People from all over the world were there. All these language groups. Where'd they go at the end of that event? Home. Taking with them the story of what just happened. Very, very quickly, the gospel went to the world. The known world. So I, I look at things and think... I, I, in fact, uh, O'Donnell, again, writing for R. Kent Hughes' series, he says this, The apostles, in a sense, reached their world for Christ as the gospel spread in their generation from Jerusalem to the four corners of the Roman Empire. And again, O'Donnell says, once Jerusalem has been seized and sacked, Jesus Christ could return at any time. Follow the temple, the last sign before final judgment. So for those who look at verse 14 and say, no, no, that does away with imminence, I beg to differ. Okay, gently, nicely, but I don't agree with you, sorry. Um, next, verse 21, well, it's back in verse 9, the word tribulation. Almost done, guys. You're hanging in there on good stuff. The tribulation. The tribulation. Is every reference to tribulation the tribulation? No would be a good answer. No, but yes, I think there's a foreshadowing of an even greater event. Do I think there's a great tribulation yet to come? Yes, I do. I do. Do I think that every bad day between here and then is the great tribulation? No. I think there's tribulation, and then there's big T tribulation. Short answer. Budding of the fig tree. Is the budding of the fig tree the rebirth of the nation of Israel? You heard this one? Have you heard this? whole number of you have. In prophecy circles, there are many who teach that. And uh, I, I don't happen to ascribe to that viewpoint. People look at verse 32 and say, that's talking about Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And therefore, that generation will not pass away till it all happens. That was pretty popular in the 80s and 90s. That within 40 years of Israel becoming a nation, the end would come. And that was somebody's viewpoint, and I would say, just like some of uh, these other viewpoints got discredited as years went by, I think not on that. And before you line up to say, yeah, but it is, uh, I'll just send you right to John MacArthur's manuscript for this text, where he says, yeah, nope, not so much. So uh, if you don't like my comment, you can take it up with John, uh, not the apostle, uh, uh, Pastor John. He just says, no, fig tree's not Israel. Uh, we made that up. Jesus never said that. It's talking about something else. So there you go. Now, 
I, I, want, I want to steer us in just a, to a couple of things. Next week, we'll be right back at chapter 25, and many of these same themes are going to continue. But I, I want you to look with me at verse 42. Therefore, what is it? Stay awake. Stay awake. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Pay attention here. Use the example of somebody breaking into your house. If somebody was going to break into your house and left you a note and said, hey, at 2.30, I'm swinging by for the TV, right? You're going to say, no problem. You're going to rack the shotgun and you're going to be sitting by the front door saying, oh, 2.30, here he comes. Of course he doesn't do that. Be ready. He's saying, you don't know what time the thief is coming. You don't know when Jesus is going to come. So part of the purpose of this whole chapter is to say, so you be ready. The Son of Man is coming, verse 44, at an hour you do not expect. So you be ready. You say, well, how would I be ready? Well, expecting his, his return, but verse 46 tells you more. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Doing what he was supposed to do. What, it, what is that for the child of God? Your pursuit of Christ. You're living out the gospel in all the places you go. You're communicating about Jesus to everybody else wherever you are. You're using the gifts and abilities. You're being involved in God's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You be so doing when he comes. The master of the, of the servant, verse 50, will come. He will come on a day he does not expect him. So he says, be ready, be ready. Now, chapter 25, where we're going to go next week, Jesus introduces a couple of other themes he has not commented on yet. So more on this next week when you come back to church. Matthew 25, a couple of other things uh, will, will come to the surface. So for today, I just say this. I hope you're ready to see Jesus, whether through death or through his return. Hope you're ready by having trusted Christ as your Savior. No, really, truly. Trusting Jesus is your Savior from sin. And then, whether you, you know, if, if you know Christ is your Savior, I hope you're living in such a way that if he flipped the light on and said, Hi, that you would not be running like cockroaches when the lights come on. Oh, no, I wasn't ready. No, 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 don't do that. Stand with me. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we look to your word and we find such encouragement and joy. We see the glory of Christ everywhere here. We see your word standing strong and solid. Take it to the bank. Your word will never pass away. We thank you that there's coming a day when the Son of Man will return. We want to be found at the Master's business when that day comes that we stand before you. So, Father, draw our hearts to you in faith. You know right where each of us stands with you. Pull our hearts to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a good week as you mull all this over, and we'll see you very, very soon.